It's October 27, 2019. The NBA is back. The last man of cornrows is back. And he's with Paul George. Kinda, sorta. The Brian is with the brow. Harden is with Wes Wolf. Down in H-Tine. And H-Tine evens the World Series 2-2. Going to go across the lines with Theodore Roosevelt and the most interesting man in the world. And back by unpopular demand, hater appreciation for 45. He's a piece of shit. I know it. You know it. Everyone knows it. Across the country and around the world, across the street and around the corner, this is Over the Culture. This is Over the Culture podcast, where you get to hear my spin on things I like, like music, sports, sports entertainment, movies, TV shows, and your mom. I really appreciate her tuna casserole. Tell her I said thanks. You also get to hear about things I don't like. Like Donald Trump. What's up, everybody? I am your ambassador of ceremonies. Pat Stay Black, Alex Treblack, the One Gig Kid, Reefer Sutherland, Lou Flytalker, Alfred Hugecock, the Prince of Petty, Sir Blunt Smokington, Steve G. And this is over the culture. Bruh. Hey yo everybody, how is your Sunday? Happy Sunday, how was your weekend? How was your week? My week was pretty cool, I finished one job and started another. For the people, my faithfuls who've been listening this whole time, if you lost track of Steve's job count, this is job number five since I started this podcast. Job number five, let's, let's hope that I stay at this one for a while. No one goes on a strike, no one gets laid off, no one acts funny. Everything goes well. So far, like this job, we're three days in. Had orientation Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And tomorrow, I start my first actual shift. Want to know who I'm working with? Want to know who else started working with me? My mom! That's right. And I'm so proud of her. They like her. They love her. She's cracking jokes in the orientation. People are laughing. She's catching on. She's, hey, our trainer came up to me and she said, your mom is really, she's kicking ass. I went by her station and she's kicking ass. So where we're working at, it's a place called EPC. It's a plastic plant in Bellevue, Ohio. Ohio. And they do the accessories for different automobiles, Ford. Uh, They do stuff for... I don't know, I think Chrysler. They do some stuff for domestic vehicles. Uh, they do some stuff for Whirlpool. They do stuff for Lear. They make uh, some products uh, for those companies. And eight hour shifts, overtime is readily available. And I'm on the second shift. My mother will be on the third shift. She works overnight. And I'm gonna be doing some overtime so I can Keep an eye on everything, see how, seeing how she's doing, and uh, pick up some extra change, some spinning change, and me and her, we both like it. Um, so far, so good. Uh, it's a small town in Ohio, 
Bellevue is, and it's it's one of those little mud hole towns like uh, Port Clinton or Clyde, you know, little Mayberry, everyday America, USA, everyday town, USA spots. As my grandma used to say, you could shit on one end and smell it on the other, where the population consists of more meth heads than people who go to church. Speaking of church, I wonder how Pastor David Wilson's congregation is doing. I wonder what kind of service he's providing these days. Man, wouldn't you love to sit in on that? wonder what he's talking about. As a matter of fact, I would like to go just to see. I'm intrigued. I'm interested. Piqued my interest. You know, who else can say their pastor's gone viral for eating pussy? That's something to hang your hat on. Yeah, my church is lit. Pastor was talking about eating clit. Lickety-clickety. Clickety-clack. Also, today is the last day for Cedar Point. The last day of Hollow Weekends, hence the last day of the season. Then they wrap things up for the winter, spring, and we restart late spring. So last weekend, traffic was hectic. And I believe the article said that Cedar Point had at least 40,000 people at their park. At least 40,000 last Saturday. And I don't know what the capacity is, but that's a lot of people in that park. And it resulted in them having to turn people away. They, they went past their max, apparently. So yeah, today is the last day at least 40,000 and they had to turn people away. Can you imagine that driving all the way from Illinois or driving all the way from Wisconsin to go to Cedar Point only to be told that you can't come in? We're at our max. Ain't that a bitch. Ain't that something. But yeah, today is the last day for Cedar Point. Won't be opening up until late May. So get it but I don't know it's it's way too cold it's way too cold to get on roller coaster today last weekend was the ideal weekend and it was bumper to bumper traffic all throughout Sandusky Ohio something I'm just now getting hip to is this place called McCamey Manor and uh, as we're approaching Halloween I'm hearing more and more about it I've seen some videos on the place and it's pretty gruesome McCamey Manor is a torture house and a pioneer of the notion of extreme haunts. McCamey Manor was founded in San Diego by resident Russ McCamey and was originally located on his property. It is known for its simulated aggression towards its guests, who must sign a liability waiver to get in. Employees of the Manor may physically assault patrons, hit them with vibrating toys, waterboard them, force them to eat and drink unknown substances, have them bound and gagged, or engage in other forms of emotional, physical, and psychological torture. One journalist Tara West mentions that in the communities where it occurs, the residents question how the attraction stays legal, even with the waiver. Now, the house permits just a handful of patrons to enter each weekend. Guests are not required to pay an entrance fee. Instead, McCamey accepts payment only in dog food for his pet dogs and local animal shelters. At the Tennessee location, 18 to 20 can get in with parents' consent or 21 and over. The Alabama location is 21 and over. 
The tour can last from four to eight hours, and no guest has made it all the way through in either location. Despite previously not allowing safe words, McCamey says that guests have the option to use one that ends the experience immediately. The house operates year-round, and there is a waiting list of over 24,000 people just asking to get tortured. Um, I guess people wanting to challenge themselves to see if they can make it through, and apparently no one has ever made it through as long as this thing has been up, as long as this has been an idea in existence. Now, of course, there's been some criticisms about McCamey Manor. Uh, according to an editorial by Horror Buzz, the haunt community does not consider McCamey Manor a part of traditional Halloween horror houses. While there is a safe word, one participant, Laura Hertz Brotherton, says that during her experience, she repeated the safe phrase for several minutes before employees stopped torturing her. She later went to a hospital for extensive injuries. Participants can also be drugged during their experience. Yeah. It's a no for me, dog. There is no way I'm going to sign my life away, literally, to allow somebody to tie me up, gag me, hit me, possibly punch me, uh, cause psychological kind of issues. And, you know, they say you have to be evaluated by a doctor physically and mentally before you even participate in this torture house. And... Yeah, you can't hit back either. They can touch you, poke you, do all kinds of things to you, and you can't retaliate. So I think I would be eliminated immediately. The second you put your hands on me, I'm punching you dead in your face. Actually, I wouldn't even make it through the interview process because I, I seen some videos on YouTube and they kind of degrade them during the interview process. And I don't know, you must have a low self-esteem or you might be a masochist to participate in this or even find any kind of enjoyment in McCamey Manor. You can check out some clips. There's some on social media all over the place, Instagram. Uh, they were even featured on a special on Netflix and it's called Haunters, The Art of the Scare. And it's on Netflix original series, Dark Taurus. As of 2018, the San Diego location was permanently closed. There is now a facility in Summertown, Tennessee, which has been the subject of numerous complaints in Lawrence County. County Commissioner Scott Franks wrote about an incident in which deputies were called to the property after a neighbor saw a woman dragged, screaming from a van as part of the experience, saying, staged or not, this is simply something that none of us want anyone anywhere near us. District Attorney Brent Cooper said that the program is legal because people are subjecting themselves to it voluntarily though participants can withdraw their consent at any time according to Tennessee law. A facility also exists in Huntsville, Alabama, home of Alabama A&M. And I don't know, black folks, we ain't with that spooky shit like that, man. All right, I talked to my cousin about it and he said, yeah, he, he, he hitting somebody off rip. So yeah, I, don't, I, I can't get down with that, man. Just allowing somebody to just touch me and I can't do shit about it. They say if you hit back, you're instantly eliminated. Well, I just eliminate myself because I already know how this is going to play out. And the waiting list to get in this place is over 20,000 people. People coming from all over the world, across the globe. And, and all that tells me is we dwell amongst a lot of sadists and masochists, okay? Just watching those videos made me cringe. I saw one where they had the girl tied up and they were forcing leeches into her mouth. She's spitting them out. 
and they're picking them up off the ground and just shoving the leeches back into her grill yeah man somebody's getting shot fucking with me like that yeah man ain't no fucking way it's been reported that some people have suffered PTSD from their experience at McKinley Manor uh, PTSD the same thing that people who fought in Nam, people who fought in wars just being in the service period have suffered so you know having these post-traumatic stress disorders even hearing all that the waiting list is still massive people still want to sign up for this people are weird people are strange word to Jim Morrison speaking of weird ass fucking people in this week's edition of mass shootings authorities say at least two people have died and 16 people were injured at a party in Greenville Texas according to authorities the party was a non-sanctioned homecoming party for Texas A&M Commerce Deputies were called to the party as a complaint of parking on the shoulder of Highway 380. Deputies say approximately 750 people were at the party when they arrived and gunshots erupted 15 minutes later. The two deputies say they didn't see the shooter at the time because of the mass exodus and they didn't fire their weapons. According to authorities, 12 people were shot and 16 were injured. Some people were injured by glass as they escaped as they tried to escape the venue. One of the deputies took one of the victims to the hospital in his patrol car while the other deputy triaged other victims. The Texas Rangers and the FBI are investigating. The shooter has not been identified and is still on the run. Authorities say that witnesses have not been able to give a comprehensive description of the shooter. Deputies don't believe the shooter was a partygoer. They believe that he went there specifically for the shooting. According to authorities, they believe one of the victims who died was targeted by the shooter. Deputies say it appears that the rest of the victims were random. Greenville is just northeast of Dallas in an 18-minute drive to campus. Texas A&M Commerce has more than 12,000 students in its officially homecoming weekend. Hey, no one is safe. You expect to go to a homecoming party and you might not come out. And I'm sure we'll get more information on that as the days go by. And I've said this before, uh, and it's not even in jest, but there's going to be another one. It doesn't seem to stop. If it's not every weekend, it's just about every week. There's a mass shooting somewhere. And I can't even put it on the South. Can't put it on Texas. Can't put it on Florida. Yeah, they're both gun-toting proud states. But man, this is all over the country now. Something happened recently in Ohio. There was the shooting in Cincinnati. So, you know, I can't put it on the South. This is all over, you know, and will we find the motive? Who knows? But I do know that it's just not the same. We, we live in a different world, man. You used to be able to go to a party, have a good time, go to homecoming, go to a dance, go to a movie theater, watch a movie, go to Walmart, get your grocery shopping this day and age you just never know stay safe people some good news i have is dave chappelle is going to be honored with the mark twain prize for american humor today a lineup of entertainers including chappelle's writing partner neil brennan common 
Bradley Cooper, Tiffany Haddish, John Legend, Lorne Michaels, Trevor Noah, John Stewart, and others will pay tribute to the comedian. It's considered the highest accolade in comedy and recognizes individuals who've had an impact on American society in the vein of 19th century novelist and essayist Samuel Clemens or his pseudonym Mark Twain. Previous recipients include Richard Pryor, Jonathan Winters, Carl Reiner, Whoopi Goldberg, Lily Tomlin, Lauren Michaels, Steve Martin, George Carlin, Tina Fey, Will Ferrell, Ellen DeGeneres, Carol Burnett, Bill Murray, David Letterman, and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Now, he's in good company. It's a long time coming. He is a legend, solidified legend, and he's still active. Is this the best we've seen of Dave? I feel like he's still got more. He's a real comedian, a comedian's comedian. Hopefully, he'll be doing stand-up until the casket drops. Because this last one, Sticks and Stones, is a masterpiece. To me, it's his best one yet. A lot of people still think Killing Him Softly was his best. But, man, he's aging like wine. I really love Killing Him Softly. But this one, man, is it, he, he hit him in the dome with this one. So, shout out to Dave Chappelle, man. It's well-deserved. He is a comedic legend. Been in the game for years. I, I was able to see him uh, my freshman year at Bowling Green. It was him headlining. Dane Cook was on his way up. He opened up. He was the second guy. And the, the first guy was Jamie Kennedy. Uh, all three were great. Dave Chappelle, he killed it. And uh, I think he was high as giraffe pussy. Seemed like he was doing a lot of pauses searching for his next words but he still did it he did that shit um you know he had everybody in his in hysterics but yeah man shout out to dave Chappelle, one of the comedic gods NBA season is back. Kawhi. The last man of cornrows. Is back. Goat Y. And they open up the season. Clippers against the Lakers. Clippers at home. I mean, basically, they're both at home. Uh, it was a good game. AD still, I guess, trying to figure out how he's going to gel with Brian in the company. And... The Clippers, they look tough. They didn't even have Paul George. He's still out. You know, you got Kawhi Leonard. You got my man Frank. Or I almost called him Frankie Beverly. Patrick Beverly. You got Harold. Got Lou Williams coming off the bench. Probably the best six man in the NBA right now. It's going to be a fight for the king of L.A. Is it going to be Brian or Kawhi? Kawhi or Brian? I know one thing's for sure. It's the end of the Warriors dynasty. So right after Kawhi and company beat up on Bron in the brow, he went into the new Golden State Arena and beat up on them. He gave them their last... He kicked their ass in their last game in Oracle. He kicked their ass in their first game in their new arena. Whatever that's called. Don't care to know at the moment. So in other words, fuck y'all niggas. Yes, no Clay with the K. He's still out. So it's Steph, D 
D'Angelo Russell, the snitch. And then you got Pink Mouth, Draymond. Yeah, your days are done. You're cooked. Finito. It's a wrap, B. No Western Conference for you. No Western Conference Finals. No NBA Finals. Hell, you might not even make it into the playoffs this year, Golden State Warriors, because you don't have Clay with a K, no KD, no BD Bead. Let's see how great of a coach Curry is now. You want to give him all the credentials when he's got a monstar team. Let's see how great he can do with this watered-down version of a, of a championship roster. Let's see how great your golden boy is now, America, your golden point guard. Let's see if he can razzle-dazzle and shoot threes from half court, from three-fourths of a court. Let's see how great you are, Steph. No clay to help you. Got D'Angelo Russell and watch your back. Watch your smartphones. Look out for your smartphones in the locker room. D'Angelo Russell's on the team. Will the Warriors make the playoffs? Will they make it back to the Western Conference Finals? Will they make it to the NBA Finals? I know one thing is for sure. You will not be NBA champions again. Yes. Fuck Steph Curry. Cowboys are on a bye week after whooping up on those Eagles. Philadelphia, the Florida of cities. Yeah. The Browns, they visit Gillette Stadium today. Hey, let's make a statement. Browns, Dog Pound, where you at? System time, Brady. And the evil genius, Bill Belichick. You smug face fuck. You look just like the mom from Throw the Mama Off the Train. Sloth's mom from the Goonies. Such a bulldog of a man. So what say you, Browns? You can do it. Buster Mayberry. It's all on you. All eyes on you. Yeah. And OBJ. I want to upset, man. What's up with the Patriots just bullying Deboing through the league? Just spanking donkey punching it's pimp slapping competition left and right no one's even posed a threat to these guys yet come on browns you're not scared don't be scared get out the crowd if you're scared word a little scrappy wwe they have this event coming up on halloween on the 31st it's going to be in saudi arabia the big match brock Lesnar versus his his rival from UFC, Kane Velasquez, and I'm a Brock fan. He's my favorite guy currently on the roster. He's the beast. And his manager, Paul Heyman, just that's the mouthpiece. Brock don't have to say shit. Just look intimidating at the forefront, and his man to the side, his Jewish manager, just does all the talking for him. I love it. He just comes in, wrecks shit. But what I don't like is the squash match he had against my man, Kofi Kingston. Kofi, he defended his belt for several months, ever since WrestleMania. Ten seconds into his match with Brock, pinned. One, two, three, 
title reign is over. And I didn't appreciate that. So hopefully, even though I like Brock, I, I you know, somebody, he, he, he needs his ass beat, man, for the sake of Kofi, because I, I like Kofi too. So come on, Kane. And I'm sure Brock is like, fuck Kane. Don't talk to me about no motherfucking Kane. But hey, Kane Velasquez is a beast in his own right. He's a bad motherfucker. So I, I do want to watch that match. If I don't care about anything else on that on that card, it's going to be Brock Lesnar versus Kane Velasquez. Going to be October 31st in Saudi Arabia. How about those Buckeyes? Beat the fuck out of Wisconsin. Wisconsin Badgers. No, you're not going to spoil my Buckeye season. Nope. J.K. Dobbins, steamrolling. Through you motherfuckers. Chase Young. On defense for the Heisman candidacy. Let's make that happen. He's a one-man army yesterday. Wisconsin. Had nothing for him. It was a slow start. It was a defensive struggle. Back and forth, left and right. And we finally cracked the case. Justin Fields got his second win. J.K. Dobbins remembered, hey, I'm J.K. Dobbins. I'm a fucking monster. 38-7, that's what she wrote. And then we're going to play Maryland. And then we're going to play Penn State. And then we're going to play Michigan. O-H-I-O Motherfucker Today in sports history 1980, the Houston Astros owner John McMullen replaces general manager Tal Smith with Al Rosen 1985, Anthony Carter begins his NFL streak of 100 plus consecutive game receptions And on that same day, the Kansas City Royals beat the St. Louis Cardinals four games to three in the 82nd World Series. In 1986, the New York Mets beat Boston Red Sox four games to three in the 83rd World Series. R.I.P. Bill Buckner. In 1991, the Minnesota Twins beat the Atlanta Braves one zip in 10 innings in Game 7 at Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome. They win the second baseball World Series since their move to Minneapolis. The Twins pitcher Jack Morris is named MVP. In 1992, Don Baylor is appointed the first manager of the Colorado Rockies. 1995, the contract finalizing the Cleveland Browns move to Baltimore is signed. 1999, the New York Yankees beat Atlanta 4-1 in Game 4 at Yankee Stadium to sweep the Braves and retain baseball World Series. Yankees closer Mariano Rivera is named the MVP. In 2002, the Anaheim Angels beat the San Francisco Giants 4-1 in Game 7 at Edison Field to win the Angels' first baseball World Series. Anaheim's first baseman Troy Glaus is named the MVP. In 2004, the Boston Red Sox win the World Series for the first time in 86 years, beating the St. Louis Cardinals 3-zip in Game 4 at Busch Stadium to sweep the Cardinals. Boston's outfitter Manny Ramirez is named the MVP. And in 2006, St. Louis beats the Detroit Tigers 4-2 in Game 5 at Busch Stadium to win the Cardinals' 10 Baseball World Series. 
And in 2006, St. Louis beats the Detroit Tigers 4-2 in Game 5 at Bush Stadium to win the Cardinals' 10th Baseball World Series. Cards infielder Dave Eckstein is series MVP. And that was my half-assed sports report. When we come back, we're going to go across the lines with Theodore Roosevelt and the most interesting man in the world. We'll be black after these messages. In today's birthdays, happy 22nd birthday to NBA player Lonzo Ball, NBA player and former Buckeye Evan Turner turns 31, two-time NBA champion Andrew Bynum is 32 today, former Cleveland Brown Brady Quinn is 35, NBA coach Rick Carlisle turns 60 today. Award-winning Italian actor, director, and producer Roberto Benigni turns 67 today. American model and actress Jane Kennedy is 68. Canadian actor, director, and producer Ivan Reitman turns 73 today. And happy 80th birthday to English actor, comedian, screenwriter, and producer John Cleese. What happens when you move all the black and brown people out of the neighborhood and replace them with urban, professionally-minded, 30-something Caucasians? What's up, bruh? Do you vape? Tight, homie. Want to join my fantasy league? From the producers of Job Discrimination Disco, Fox presents a new reality show that's guaranteed to keep the property value rising. Gentrification. This fall on Fox. Trans Negroes more than meets the eye. Check the Adam's apple facial hair and their feet size because they're Decepticons. Trans Negroes, Negroes in disguise. Trans Negroes more than meets the eye. Are you tired of being called the beanpole? Are you mad at your memories? Have they been mistaken for mosquito bites? Does your push-up bra need a push-up bra? Too embarrassed to wear a bikini at the beach because everyone will think you're a boy in drag? To that I say, OBG, why are you allowing yourself to suffer when the Itty Bitty Titty Committee is here to help you? Itty Bitty Titty Committee. IBTC is an outreach program dedicated to providing counseling and therapy sessions for women who weren't gifted with guns. For those who really want implants but can't afford them at the moment, in the meantime, we'll boost your confidence with affirmation training, gymnastic therapy, and group hugs. Micromastia is no laughing matter. It has become one of the leading factors of stress for women aged 25 to 40 in the last eight days. Stress can lead to depression, and as we know, depression can get the breast of us. You're not the only one with lowercase a cups. There's a whole community out there ready and available to help you in your time of need. Call 1-800-419-IBTC. And a special mention to those no longer with us. Scott Weiland was an American singer, songwriter, and frontman for the band Stone Temple Pilots, and later for supergroups Velvet Revolver and The Wildabouts. Born Scott Richard Weiland on October 27, 1967, in San Jose, California, Weiland's career spanned three decades. 
he also established himself as a solo artist, releasing three studio albums, two cover albums, and collaborations with several other musicians throughout his career. Wylan was known for his flamboyant and chaotic onstage persona. He was also known for constantly changing his appearance and vocal style, for his use of a megaphone in concerts for vocal effect, and his battles with substance abuse. In 1995, Wylan was convicted of buying crack cocaine. He was sentenced to one year of probation. His drug use did not end after his sentence, but in fact increased, and he moved into a hotel room for two months next door to Courtney Love, where she said he shot drugs the whole time with her. In April 2015, footage from a show appeared online leading fans to question the health of Wylan, who appeared in the video to be zoned out and giving a bizarre performance. A representative for Wylan responded stating that lack of sleep, several drinks, and a faulty earpiece were to blame, not drugs. In June of that year, Wylan claimed that he had been off drugs for 13 years. And on December 3, 2015, in Bloomington, Minnesota, while on tour with the Wildabouts, Wylan was found dead in his tour bus. Police searched Wylan's tour bus and confirmed there were small amounts of cocaine in the bedroom where Wylan was discovered dead. They also found prescription drugs including Xanax, Viagra, opioids, antidepressants, and sleeping pills. Medical examiner later determined it to be an accidental overdose of cocaine, alcohol, and MDA. They also noted his cardiovascular disease, history of asthma, and prolonged substance abuse in the report. Wylan was 48. John Gotti was an Italian-American gangster who became boss of the Gambino crime family in New York City. Born John Joseph Gotti Jr. October 27, 1940 in the Bronx, New York, Gotti and his brothers grew up in poverty and turned to a life of crime at an early age. Gotti quickly became one of the crime family's biggest earners and a protege of Gambino family underboss Aniello Della Croce operating out of the Ozone Park neighborhood of Queens. Early in his criminal career and following FBI's indictment of members of Gotti's crew for selling narcotics, Gotti began to fear that he and his brother would be killed by Gambino boss Paul Castellano for selling drugs. As this fear continued to grow and amidst growing dissent over the leadership of the crime family, Gotti organized the murder of Castellano in, this, in December 1985 and took over the family shortly thereafter, leaving Gotti as the boss of what has been described as America's most powerful crime syndicate and one that made hundreds of millions of dollars a year from racketeering, hijacking, loan sharking, drug trafficking, bookmarking, prostitution, extortion, pornography, illegal gambling, and other criminal activities. At his peak, Gotti was one of the most powerful and dangerous crime bosses in the United States. During his era, he became widely known for his outspoken personality and flamboyant style, which gained him favor with some of the general public. While his peers avoided attracting attention, especially from the media, Gotti became known as the Dapper Don for his expensive clothes and personality in front of news cameras. He was later given the name the Teflon Don after three high-profile trials in the 1980s resulted in his acquittal, though it was later revealed that the trials had been tainted by jury tampering, juror misconduct, and witness intimidation. Law enforcement authorities continued gathering evidence against Gotti that helped lead to his downfall. Gotti's underboss, Salvatore Sammy the Bull Gravano, aided the FBI in finally convicting Gotti. In 1991, Gravano agreed to turn state's evidence and testify for the prosecution against Gotti after hearing the boss making several disparaging remarks about Gravano on a wiretap that implicated them both in several murders, conspiracy to commit murder, racketeering, obstruction of justice, 
tax evasion, illegal gambling, extortion, and loan sharking. He was sentenced to life in a prison without parole and was transferred to United States Penitentiary, Marion in Southern Illinois. While in prison, Gotti died of throat cancer on June 10, 2002 at the United States Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri. Gotti was 61. And Ruby Dee was an American actress, poet, playwright, screenwriter, journalist, and civil rights activist. Born Ruby Ann Wallace on October 27, 1922 in Cleveland, Ohio. Ohio! She is perhaps best known for originating the role of Ruth Younger in the stage and film adaptations of A Raisin in the Sun. Her other notable films include The Jackie Robinson Story, Do the Right Thing, and Jungle Fever. Dee was married to Ozzie Davis, with whom she frequently performed with until his death in 2005. For her performance as Mahaley, for her performance as Mahaley Lucas in American Gangster, Dee was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress and won the Screen Actors Guild Award for Female Actor in a Supporting Role. Dee was a Grammy, Emmy, Obie, and Drama Desk winner. She was also a National Medal of Arts, Kennedy Center Honors, and Screen Actors Guild Life Achievement Award recipient. Ruby Dee died on June 11, 2014, at her home in New Rochelle, New York, from natural causes at the age of 91. Rest easy, y'all. On October 27, 1858, Theodore Roosevelt was born in New York City. He was the 26th president of the United States from 1901 to 1909, and he lived a very interesting life. He's the first president to hail from New York City. He's known for having been in the cavalry, leading the Rough Riders charge on San Juan Hill, commissioning the Panama Canal, preserving loads of land and saying, speak softly but carry a big stick. He served as the 25th vice president from March to September of 1901 and as the 33rd governor of New York from 1899 to 1900. As a leader of the Republican Party, he became a driving force for the Progressive Era in the early 20th century. His face is depicted on Mount Rushmore alongside George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Abraham Lincoln. He's generally ranked in polls of historians and political scientists as one of the five best presidents. Before he was president, he was a governor, historian, adventurer, police chief, cavalryman, cowboy, explorer, hunter, naturalist, assistant secretary of the Navy, author of 35 books, and conservationist. He was a larger-than-life figure with a bombastic reputation as a total badass. He was rugged, a man's man who lived a life of epic proportions. Theodore Roosevelt was a once-in-a-generation figure, and when he died in his sleep on January 5, 1919, there would never be another like him. That is, until 2006, when the beer company Dos Equis is running a new advertising campaign and the world is introduced to Jonathan Goldsmith as the most interesting man in the world. And that leads us to Across the Lines. He would step across the line. Habitually, he's a habitual line stepper. Line stepper. The advertisements first began appearing in the United States in 2006. The ads featured an older, bearded, debonair gentleman. They also feature a montage of daring exploits involving the most interesting man when he was younger. The precise settings are never revealed, but he performs feats such as freeing an angry bear from a painful looking bear trap, shooting a pool trick shot before an audience by shooting the cue ball out of the mouth of a man lying on the pool table, winning an arm wrestling match in South America, surfing a killer wave, 
bench pressing two young women, each seated in a chair in a casino. His words carry a weight that would break a less interesting man's jaw. He's a lover, not a fighter, but he's also a fighter, so don't get any ideas. He is the life of parties he has never attended. His beard alone has experienced more than a lesser man's entire body. He can speak French in Russian. If he were to punch you in the face, you would have to fight off the strong urge to thank him. If he patted you on the back, you would put it on your resume. Both sides of his pillow are cool. He once taught a dog to bark in Spanish. He bowls overhand. Sharks have a week dedicated to him. He once had an awkward moment just to see how it feels. The agency's rationale for the brand strategy was defined as he's a man rich in stories and experiences, much the way the audience hopes to be in the future. Rather than an embodiment of the brand, the most interesting man is a voluntary brand spokesman. He and Doseki share a point of view on life that it should be lived interestingly. U.S. sales increased each year between 2006 to 2010 and tripled in Canada in 2008. Theodore Roosevelt was way ahead of his time when it came to a lot of social issues. While running for presidency in 1912, he became the first major nominee to support full suffrage for women, and he had supported equality for women since at least 1880. He also defended three minority groups facing major discrimination during this time. Catholics, Jews, and Blacks, and he appointed several men from those groups to federal offices. Roosevelt nominated the first Jew to the cabinet, Oscar Strauss, as Secretary of Commerce and Labor. Booker T. Washington, the most important black leader of the time, met with Teddy in the White House in 1901, becoming the first African-American invited to dinner at the White House. Sadly, the South did not take too kindly to this, and a lot of blacks were attacked by racist whites in the weeks after the dinner. Despite being a Republican, Theodore is generally liberal with his policies. Roosevelt grew frustrated with the stuffy conservatism of the Republican Party, so he founded the Bull Moose Party, which called for wide-ranging progressive reforms. He was a big conservationist, making it a top priority, and established many new national parks, forests, and monuments intended to preserve the nation's natural resources. The teddy bear was named after him because he refused to shoot a black bear cub just for the sake of it. Foreign ambassadors dreaded meeting him, as it usually meant that they would have to accompany him on his strenuous daily jog. Foreign ambassadors dreaded meeting him, as it usually meant that they would have to accompany him on his strenuous daily jog, with him making fun of them when they inevitably ran short of breath and started lagging behind. He once explored an uncharted tributary of the Amazon River, where he nearly died of tropical disease. After he was through with it, it had to be renamed the River Unquestionable Uncertainty. Teddy was the first president to visit another country while in office when he took a trip to Panama in 1906 to see how the completion of the Panama Canal was coming along. But the most interesting man once parallel parked a train. When in Rome, they do as he does. He can slam revolving doors. He once gave a pep talk so inspirational, both teams won. His fortune cookies simply say congratulations. Even his enemies list him as an emergency contact. In most countries, his medical advice qualifies as a health care plan. He is forbidden from walking through cemeteries because of that one incident when he raised the dead. He gave his father the talk. His sense of taste is so refined that he never says anything tastes like chicken. Not even chicken. He once talked a vampire into becoming a vegetarian. Theodore Roosevelt had the spirit of a warrior, and that warrior spirit framed his views of national politics and international relations. Historian Howard K. Beale commented Teddy and his associates came close to seeking war for its own sake. Ignorant of modern war, 
Roosevelt romanticized war. Like many young men tamed by civilization into law-abiding but adventurous living, he needed an outlet for the pent-up primordial man in him and found it in fighting and killing, vicariously or directly, in hunting or in war. Indeed, he had a fairly good time in war when war came. There was something dull and effeminate about peace. He gloried war, was thrilled by military history, and place were like qualities high in his scale of values. He was once shot in the chest just before a campaign speech and was saved by the copy of the speech in his glasses case in his jacket pocket, but went ahead and gave the speech anyways with the bullet wound in his chest, barely within an inch of his heart. The opening line of his speech was, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know whether you fully understand that I have just been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. He once killed a cougar in a knife fight. That's right. He leaped off his horse into a pack of hounds, kicked them aside, and knifed a cougar to death. His boat was stolen once. He built another boat and hunted the thieves down. Instead of shooting them in the middle of the woods, he hauled them in town for court, going for 40 hours without sleep. He read Tolstoy to keep himself awake. After he received letters from army cavalrymen complaining about having to ride 25 miles a day for training, in response, Teddy rode horseback for 100 miles from sunrise to sunset at 51 years old, making it hard for anyone to complain afterwards. Theodore Roosevelt is the only man in history to earn both the Medal of Honor and the Nobel Peace Prize. You could say Theodore Roosevelt and the most interesting man in the world share the same warrior-like spirit, but unlike the most interesting man in the world, Theodore Roosevelt was not fictional. He was the real deal. In fact, he was the most interesting man in the world before the most interesting man in the world. And that was Across the Lines. Line step. Today in entertainment history, in 1987, Heavy D and the Boys dropped their debut album, Living Large. In 1990, NBA Inside Stuff, hosted by Ahmad Rashad, premieres. In 1998, Bushwick Bill drops No Surrender, No Retreat. Mia X drops Mama Drama. And Prize released Ghetto Superstar. 2004, Drawn Together debuts. 2009, Hobson releases Gazing at the Moonlight. 2013, Stiley drops the album Ohio. Ohio! 2017, Yon announced on Instagram that he would be retiring from the music industry due to negativity and backlash. Less than a year later, he'd be murdered in Florida. Also in 2017, Yo Gotti releases I Still Am, Ty Dolla Sign releases Beach House 3, Snoop Dogg releases Make America Crip Again, and Big Crit drops Forever is a Mighty Long Time. Now this portion of the show is where we show appreciation to our haters. Hi haters. president needs a thesaurus and a therapist, though not necessarily in that order. According to an article in the New York Times written by Frank Bruni, you campaign in poetry according to a popular saying and govern in prose. Donald Trump will be impeached in doggerel. I mean his own. The other day he turned to the bounteous trove of the English language for a pejorative worthy of his critics awfulness, at least as he sees it. He decided on human scum. 
He sought to capture the horror and injustice befalling him. What he came up with was lynching. There's being crude with language, there's being loose with it, and then there's being Trump, who uses words the way a toddler does marbles, grabbing the ones that are most bluntly colorful and tossing them into the air just because he can. Trump is as inept at English as he is at governing. He's oxymoronic, a nativist who can't really speak his native tongue. Too harsh? I direct you to perfect. That is how over and over he has characterized his telephone conversation with the president of Ukraine and seldom has a term existed in such tension with truth. Perfect is Nadia Komaneki on the uneven bars at the 1976 Olympics. Perfect is Frank Sinatra singing Summer Wind. Perfect is not an insistence that a foreign government smear a political rival when you're just emerging from a two-year investigation into whether you had another foreign government do precisely that. But then Trump seems to have placed his dictionary on the same unreachable shelf where his conscience gathers dust. As the impeachment inquiry intensifies and the evidence against him accumulates, his vocabulary becomes more perverse in its estrangement from reality, in its desperation, in its broken record repetitiveness, in its sheer clumsiness. The screeching of the raccoons in Central Park is more coherent and less feral. They're merely nervous when my dog approaches. Trump is petrified as Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff close in. Crazy Nancy, he said at a recent rally in Dallas where his epic self-pity and all-consuming grudges took center stage. Think of that. That's Crazy Nancy. She is crazy and shifty Schiff. How about this guy? He makes up my conversation, which was perfect. He makes up my conversation. He sees what I said. It doesn't play well because it was perfect. Give the president a thesaurus and a therapist, though not necessarily in that order. He added, the do-nothing Democrats have betrayed our country, and that great betrayal is over. We are finally again, and we've been doing it now for almost three years. Doing what? Again, how? This wasn't a speech. It was a puzzle. Can you believe we've been doing this for three years? Can you believe it? I've been a politician for three years. I can't believe it. Trust me. President Trump, your incredulity is no match for mine. It has been the case from the start that Trump communicates like no president before him. That's principally because he miscommunicates like no president before him. And while his verbal errors and infelicities are largely accidental, they're hardly incidental. They're a semantic compliment to his flouting of tradition and junking of norms. They help prevent him from being tagged as one of the elitists he rails against. No snob would spell so sloppily or use capital letters with such abandon. No snob would be so lavish with schoolyard slurs. No snob would thrash and flail his way through sentences the way he does. On Twitter in particular, Trump doesn't exclaim. He expectorates. You can feel the spittle several time zones away. And Twitter suits him, not just because of its immediacy and reach. It's a format so abridged and casual that botched grammar isn't necessarily equated with stupidity. It could simply be the consequence of haste or convenience. Formerly written letters follow rules and demand etiquette. For Twitter, all you need is a keypad and a spleen. But Trump seems even more splenetic of late. He raged for nearly 90 minutes in Dallas a week and a half ago. He raged for more than 70 in that wild cabinet meeting on Monday when he claimed three times in a row, as if stuttering, that being president had cost him between $2 billion and $5 billion, erroneously, said that he was the first president to forego a salary, ridiculously boasted that Miami's airport might be the world's busiest. It's not even in the top 20 dismissed the emoluments clause of the Constitution as phony, and careered from one fantasy to the next, covering so much territory with so little truthfulness 
that media fact-checkers devoted long articles to correcting the record. In a speech in Pittsburgh on Wednesday, he crowed that, we're building a wall on the border of New Mexico, and we're building a wall in Colorado. He added that we're building a wall in Texas, and we're not building a wall in Kansas, but they get the benefit of the walls that we just mentioned. Jared Polis, Colorado's governor, responded with a tweet that noted that Colorado doesn't border Mexico. Good thing Colorado now offers free full-day kindergarten so our kids can learn basic geography. Trump should join them, not just for stuff about maps, but also for the lessons on reading comprehension and the vocabulary building exercises. His own recent tweets included that doozy that identified his defense secretary, not as Mark Esper, but as Mark Esperanto, a mistake too grand to be chalked up to autocorrect. No, it's more likely the sign of a haunted mind. I've written before that Trump, in terms of transparency, with which he shows us the most eccentric and ugliest parts of himself, may inadvertently be the most honest president in my lifetime. His language is obviously central to that. It's a glimpse into his fury and fears. It becomes sloppier when he's panicked, more visceral when he's vulnerable, more wildly hyperbolic, and wickedly imprecise when he's making a counterfeit show of strength. He's in a bad spot now. Imperfect reflects that, an adjectival overreach so ludicrous that it doesn't make you rethink the negative interpretations of the phone call. It makes you think Trump has lost his marbles. Lynching raises the temperature dozens of degrees from hoax and witch hunt, his go-to phrases for Robert Mueller's investigation. Human scum is the howl of a trapped animal, and his unfinished thoughts, enigmatic references and sentence fragments reflect his confusion about how to wriggle free. His torture of English is rooted in the torture of being Trump, with all those wants, all that need, all that vanity, all that spite. He's never eloquent and barely articulate, but always expressive because you say a lot when you say it all wrong. My phone call with Ukraine was perfect. It was perfect. I know it, you know it. Everyone knows it. Oh, Donald. You dumb duck. You dictating dictator. You uncultured crackpot. He refers to his detractors as human scum. What a grade school retort. So Mr. President, what do you have to say about the sexual assault claims and the reports that you've been in bed with Russia for years? Well, your shoes look ugly. You're stupid human scum. I know it, you know it, everyone knows it. If you close your eyes and play his State of the Union address, it sounds like third grade recess. Donald Trump and Nelson from The Simpsons are interchangeable. I love how he plays the victim. He uses terms like witch hunt and a lynching. You can't call it a witch hunt when you're laying the evidence out in plain sight for everyone to see. Everyone knows that Donald J. Trump is in fact human scum himself. I paid keen attention to his usage of the word lynching, and I do recall the last time people were lynched here in the United States, i.e. my ancestors, it led to a civil war. And I know that's what he's trying to accomplish. He wants to divide and conquer, stay relevant. He wants his fan base, his supporters, his MAGA fanboys who share the same disregard for the English language to follow suit. And if he's impeached, it'll be a civil war. So his usage of the word lynching, it evokes a certain feeling. It's a certain code word, just like manhunt. And his MAGA fanboys, oh, they're ready. They've showed examples that they appear to be ready. But like I said last week, like I say all the time, don't let your president get you fucked up, MAGA fanboys. 
and gals and coons. Even Bruce Springsteen, the boss himself, had to speak out on this buffoon. He said that Donald Trump is not mentally equipped to be the president of the United States. Word to the boss. In his usage of the word lynching, I feel like it has evoked a sense of activism from his MAGA clan because they're dumb enough to think that impeaching his punk ass would be the downfall of the country. He's trying to paint himself as a martyr, their martyr, and they're dumb enough to allow it. From your neo-Nazis to your hillbilly hick, American flag bandana, Ku Klux boy bands, they need something to believe in. They need someone to believe in. They say they believe in God, but yet they support Donald Trump who represents evil, corruption, greed. Someone makes sense of it. You can't with a nonsensical base. A population of people who should probably have a mental evaluation before they even go into a voting booth. Yes, they need something to look up to. They need a person, an idol, someone here on earth to look up to and idolize. And that man is Donald John Trump. He's saying the right words to them. He's doing the right things to them, even if it's not for their own good, because they're morons. And he's so sensitive. The fact that he's the president of the United States and he still has time to reply to people on Twitter, on Instagram. I at that motherfucker several times throughout the week. And it is a goal of mine to get blocked on Instagram by Donald John Trump. Donald John Trump is a bitch. Follow me on Instagram. Stevie FNG. S-T-E-V-I-E-F-N-G. Yes, please follow me on Instagram where you can see me daily air quotes lynch and air quote manhunt this human scum. Thank you once again, Donald John Trump. Fuck you once again, Donald John Trump. I'll probably see you next week here in our hater appreciation segment. up another edition of over the culture podcast hope you enjoyed it tomorrow me and me madre start our first full official shifts wish us luck with the new gig hopefully this will be my only gig for a while but life you never know astros playing the nationals tonight they even it up last night come on stros i'm pulling for y'all i used to live there so kind of got a dog in the race and one more thing, impeach that fucking peach. Y'all stay cool, my people. Peace. Trans Negroes more than meets the eye. Check the Adam's apple facial hair and their feet size because they're Decepticons. Trans Negroes, Negroes in disguise. Trans Negroes more than meets the eye. Ohio.
writing to the New York Times. In the Oval Office, an annoyed President Donald Trump ended an argument he was having with his aides. He reached into a drawer, took out his iPhone, and threw it on top of his historic resolute desk. Do you want me to settle this right now? There was no missing Trump's threat that day in early 2017, the aides recalled. With a tweet, he could fling a directive to the world, and there was nothing they could do about it. When Trump entered office, Twitter was a political tool that had helped him get elected and a digital howitizer that he relished firing. In the years since, he has fully integrated Twitter into the very fabric of his administration, reshaping the nature of the presidency and the presidential power. After Turkey invaded northern Syria this past month, he crafted his response not only in White House meetings, but also in a series of contradictory tweets. This summer, he announced increased tariffs on $300 billion worth of Chinese goods, using a tweet to deepen tensions between the two countries. And in March, Trump cast aside more than 50 years of U.S. policy, tweeting his recognition of Israel's sovereignty in the Golan Heights. He openly delighted in the reaction he provoked. Boom, I press it, Trump recalled months later at a White House conference attended by conservative social media personalities. And within two seconds, we have breaking news. Early on, top aides wanted to restrain the president's Twitter habit, even considering asking the company to impose a 15-minute delay on Trump's messages. But 11,390 presidential tweets later, many administration officials and lawmakers embraced his Twitter obsession, flocking to his social media chief with suggestions. Policy meetings are hijacked when Trump gets an idea for a tweet, drawing in cabinet members and others for wordsmithing. And as a president often at war with his own bureaucracy, he deploys Twitter to break through log jams, overrule or humiliate recalcitrant advisors and preempt his staff. He needs to tweet like we need to eat, Kellyanne Conway, his White House counselor, said in an interview. In a presidency unlike any other, where Trump wakes to Twitter, goes to bed with it, and is comforted by how much it revolves around him, the person he most often singled out for praise was himself. More than 2,000 times, according to an analysis by the New York Times. Times examined Trump's use of Twitter since taking office, reviewing all his tweets, retweets, and followers, and interviewing nearly 50 current and former administration officials, lawmakers and Twitter executives, and employees. What has emerged is a rich account with new analysis, previously unreported episodes, and fresh details of how the president exploits the platform to exert power. It is often by brute repetition. He has taken to Twitter to demand 1,159 times on immigration and his border wall, a top priority, and 521 times on tariffs, another key agenda item. Twitter is an instrument of his foreign policy. He has praised dictators more than 100 times while complaining nearly twice as much about the U.S. traditional allies. Twitter is the Trump administration's de facto personnel office. The chief executive has announced the departures of more than two dozen top officials, some fired by tweet. More than half of the president's posts, 5,889 have been attacks. No other category even comes close. His targets include the Russia investigation, a Federal Reserve that won't bow to his whims, previous administrations, entire cities that are led by Democrats, and adversaries from outspoken athletes to chief executives who displease him. Like no other modern president, Trump has publicly harangued businesses to advance his political goals and silence criticism, often with talk of government intervention. Using Twitter, he threatened Saturday Night Live with an investigation by the Federal Communications Commission and accused Amazon, led by Jeff Bezos, owner of the Washington Post, of cheating the U.S. Postal Service. As much as anything, 
Twitter is the broadcast network for Trump's parallel political reality, the alternative facts he has used to spread conspiracy theories, fake information, and extremist content, including material that energizes some of his base. Trump's use of Twitter has accelerated sharply since the end of the special counsel's Russia investigation and reached a new high as Democrats open an impeachment inquiry, the analysis shows. He tweeted more than 500 times during the first two weeks of October, a pace that put him on track to triple his monthly average. The Times analyzed Trump's tweets through October 15th. The total by the end of the month reached 11,887. His more than 66 million Twitter followers have become his private polling service, offering what he sees as validation for his performance in office. But fewer than one-fifth of his followers are voting age Americans, according to a Times analysis of Pew Research, National Surveys of Adults Who Use Twitter. The White House Press Office declined to comment for this article and turned down an interview request with the president. Now, as Trump anticipates a bitter re-election battle and faces an impeachment inquiry by Democrats, the stakes are higher than ever before, and Twitter even more central to his presidency. His top campaign aides are embracing the outrage that Trump stirs with his tweets to reinforce his anti-establishment brand and strengthen his bond with the fiercely loyal supporters who propelled him into office. And as public backing for impeachment grows, the president is using the platform to build a defensive echo chamber. While people around Trump acknowledge that his tweets can cause political damage, the president is confident in his mastery of Twitter. This past week, as he announced that U.S. Special Forces had killed the leader of the Islamic State, Trump noted the terror group's digital prowess. They use the Internet better than almost anybody in the world, he said. Perhaps other than Donald Trump. With a single tweet last fall, Trump sent his administration into a tailspin. I must, in the strongest of terms, ask Mexico to stop this onslaught. He wrote in October 2018, angry about a caravan of migrants from Central America. If unable to do so, I will call up the U.S. military and close our southern border. Trump's aides had tried for weeks to talk him out of shutting down the border. The logistics would be impossible and the economic pain extreme. The tweet prompted an emergency meeting down the hall from the Oval Office as aides scrambled to head off Trump's impulse, according to people familiar with the frantic scene. Like others in this article, they spoke on the condition of anonymity for fear of angering the president. Aides succeeded in temporarily holding him off, but the tweet crystallized for cautious bureaucrats exactly what he wanted to stop people from coming into the country. In the months that followed, Trump's threat helped to set off an effort inside the government to find ever more restrictive ways to block immigrants. Nearly six months later, Kirsten Nelson, Homeland Security Secretary, was still trying to prevent a border shutdown when the president brought her resistance to an end. Kirsten Nelson, he tweeted, will be leaving her position. This is governing in the Trump era. For President Barack Obama, a tweet about presidential proposal might mark the conclusion of a long deliberative process. For Trump, Twitter is often the beginning of how policy is made. Suddenly there's a tweet and everything gets upended. And you spent the week trying to defend something else, said Rep. Peter King of New York. This person thrives on chaos. What we may find disconcerting or upsetting or whatever, it is actually what keeps him going. In October 2017, Rex Tillerson, the president's first secretary of state, was in China with a team of diplomats negotiating sanctions on Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, when Trump weighed in on Twitter. Tillerson was wasting his time trying to negotiate with Little Rocket Man, he wrote. Save your energy, Rex. We'll do what has to be done. Two months later, a Reuters headline blared that Mick Mulvaney, 
who then was Trump's new pick to lead the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, had decided to put on ICE sanctions against Wells Fargo for consumer abuses. It was little surprise. Mulvaney was an ally of the financial industry, but Trump had other ideas. Fines and penalties against Wells Fargo Bank for their bad acts against their customers and others will not be dropped, as has incorrectly been reported. But we pursued, and if anything, substantially increased, he tweeted. Political appointees at the Bureau wanted to affirm Trump's desire publicly, despite long-standing policies against commenting on active investigations, according to former officials there. A spokesman for Mulvaney issued a statement saying that, he shares the president's firm commitment to punishing bad actors and protecting American consumers. According to two people with direct knowledge of the Wells Fargo inquiry, career bureau officials took Trump's outburst as a green light to pursue aggressive negotiations with the bank, even as Mulvaney's team prepared to dial back penalties in other cases or shelve them. Wells Fargo ultimately agreed to a billion-dollar federal settlement, the bureau's largest ever civil penalty. Over time, Trump has turned Twitter into a means of presidential communication, as vital as a statement from the White House, press secretary, or an Oval Office address. The press secretary has not held a daily on-camera press briefing, a decades-long ritual of presidential messaging since March. Instead, Trump's Twitter activity drives the day. And Trump has removed any doubt that his tweets carry the weight once reserved for more formal pronouncements. In summer 2018, his aides repeatedly tried to reassure Republican lawmakers that the president backed their hardline immigration bill, despite his remarks suggesting otherwise. But privately, Trump told several senators that there was only one certain sign of his support. If I don't tweet it, he said, according to two former senior advisors, don't listen to my staff. Article goes on. It's a pretty long piece, and I'm just going to leave it there. It's in the New York Times, and... Once again, we're getting reminded that the president of the United States is incompetent. He treats foreign relations like a food fight in the cafeteria. Look at his tweets, and it seems as if Eric Cartman made these tweets. Respect my authority. Just glad to have some power. Doesn't matter how he gets it. Doesn't matter how much he thinks he has. He's such a tough guy. He's an internet thug. He's a keyboard crip. He's a PC pyro. He's a pussy. He's a dingleberry. He's a turd in a three-piece suit. He loves him some him. Unfortunately, I don't think his wife does. That's another story. How about we just build a wall around you and your family? Let's wrap this up. This impeachment process. Get him out of here. Whatever you got to do. I'm sick of seeing his face on the TV. I'm sick of hearing his dumb voice. It's shocking that you still have supporters. You go to the UFC event, they boo you in New York. You go to the World Series, they boo you in D.C. 49% of America is ready for this fucker to get impeached. I'm shocked that number is that small. Got a lot of lead paint eating Americans who don't know their own mouth from their asshole. But they can find their way to a voting bowl. They can find their way to a voting booth. 
And he probably can't even spell Donald Trump. Luckily for them, there's pictures now. The pitcher doesn't even, the winner of the World Series, he doesn't want to eat dinner with you. He doesn't want to eat cheeseburgers with you. Frozen Orida potato. Whatever the fuck you plan on getting these kids. Get these four for fours from Wendy's. They're great. They fill you up. Got a Frosty. They got chocolate Frosties now. They're going to be huge. People don't like you, Donald Trump. They don't like... I'm not talking about the idiots who voted you in. I'm talking about like civilized human beings who have both their thumbs who aren't so dead set on pleasing daddy all the time. Oh, daddy. You vote for Trump, I vote for Trump. You vote for Bush, I vote for Bush. Anything to please you, daddy. Yeah, son, shut up and suck my cock. Those are his followers. The daddy pleasers, the MAGA bros, the cousin fuckers. But the rest of us red-blooded Americans who have some fucking decency in our hearts, some sense in our heads, we're ready to impeach the peach. And every tweet that the peach tweets is a reminder that, hey, we're not tripping. This is really going on. He really is an idiot. Every tweet is a reminder. Every appearance on television, every public speech is a reminder. This guy is a fucking rich moron. Continue doing you. I love seeing your world crumble right before our eyes. Thank you, dickface, dingleberry, duck-billed platypus, leftover spaghetti in the Tupperware face, fuck Trump. Thank you. Fuck you.